Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Okay, today our guest is Nathan Schneider, who is an assistant professor at Georgetown University. He uh, did a PhD at Carnegie Mellon University with Noah Smith and then a postdoc at Edinburgh and is starting his third year as a professor at Georgetown. Nathan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Today, we'll be talking about a paper that was published at ACL 2018 titled Comprehensive Supersense Disambiguation of English Prepositions and Possessives. Now, this is a project you've been working on for quite a long time. I remember talking to you about it uh, and even helping with initial annotation um, back at CMU five or so years ago. Can you tell us what's going on with this project? Yeah, so this is uh, the latest uh, iteration of this uh, long project. We've been working on it for basically four years. Um, It started off as a chapter in my dissertation, and then there kept being more to do. Um, So the idea here is that in languages such as English, and in in fact, most languages have similar phenomena, uh, there are these words we call prepositions which are these little function words that typically precede a noun phrase and help us to describe something, some sort of relationship, usually between a verb and a noun phrase or, a, or, a, or between two noun phrases. So you can say the, uh, the man in a hat or the man in the room or the meeting in September. And these are all different uses of in, um, that, uh, uh, and, and these prepositions are highly polysemous and highly frequent. Um, so there has been a literature, um, on, uh, disambiguating them. And, uh, we decided to, uh, sort of take a fresh look at, uh, at this, uh, disambiguation process. And in fact, the, uh, defining the task of, uh, what should our semantic uh, representation be for these uh, phenomena? So what you're trying to do is say, uh, in, in those examples, like a man in, was in the room, mm-hmm. you want to know what exactly does in mean there? Yeah. That's, that sounds hard. Yes. It, um, so for the man in the room, we can, uh, we can come up with a fairly straightforward category of location or we call it locus, but uh, essentially location. Um, that's that's the sort of most canonical use of a preposition. Uh, but then if you say a man in a hat, are you saying the hat is where the man is located? Or a man in a frenzy. In a frenzy, right. So there are, so the way linguists uh, often talk about this is that uh, there are uh, prepositions and, and some languages have postpositions where they, they follow the noun phrase. Um, in uh, the way the way linguists talk about them is that they often start out as uh, uh, mainly spatial and and sometimes temporal markers. Um, so the man in the room is a fairly straightforward spatial marker, or you can say I uh, was eating in the room, and um, there it modifies a, a verb. Um, the, uh, but then they very often get grammaticalized and extended into all sorts of other meanings because uh, we like to relate words together and there are only so many um, syntactic devices that allow us to express relations sort of without any marking, like uh, in English, subject and object are, are, uh, and are unmarked positions. There's no extra... Uh, piece that you see when, uh, aside from word order. And then, um, uh, you know, we can do things like um, adjective modifying a noun or, or uh, a noun modifying another noun, a noun noun compound. Uh, but if we want to uh, sort of communicate effectively, it seems that we often need these little function words to help, to help narrow down the um, the kind of semantic relation we're talking about. Uh, so, you know, the we use words like in and at and for and to and from. And, and, and so the end goal essentially then is trying to decide what the relationship is between the main content words of the sentence, right? And there are a lot of different approaches to try to get at this. Uh, so, for instance, semantic role labeling 
says, I have a verb and I want to figure out what the, uh, what the verb has some, some number of arguments and I want to know what particular relationship, uh, it holds between the arguments of the verb and the verb itself. And this, this seems very related to what you're talking about here. Can you tell us about the difference between these? Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. So I would say the, the, uh, simplest difference is that, um, semantic role labeling approaches usually assume that there is some sort of lexicon of predicates or frame evoking uh, words. Um, and then from that lexicon, you, you decide what the predicates are. And then for each predicate, you decide what its possible roles are. Um, so in prop bank, uh, there are lexical items, uh, mostly verbs, now not, not just verbs, but mostly verbs. Um, and each verb has a set of senses, and each verb senses uh, has a set of numbered roles that are considered core arguments. And some of them are uh, syntactically can be syntactically realized as subject or object, and some of them can be realized as prepositional phrases. Um, so uh, that is sort of a lexicon-based approach for um, for. Uh, describing meaning, uh, representing meaning, uh, in terms of the structure and, and relations of uh, items in a, within a sentence. Um, the uh, sort of direction uh, I pursued in my in my dissertation, and then in this work with uh, on uh, prepositions, um, uh, along with uh, Vivek Srikumar and Jenna Huang and many collaborators over the years, uh, has been to try to come up with an open sort of inventory uh, that does not require a lexicon to first define uh, for particular items what the set of roles should be. Um, so the idea is, th this is where we get uh, comprehensive in the title. So uh, the idea is we're defining semantic classes rather than um, lexical uh, sense descriptions. And so we have an inventory uh, currently of 50 classes, uh, which sounds like a lot, but it, we actually had a lot more in the previous iteration, so we've we've narrowed it down a little bit. Um, and uh, these classes are, many of them are very much inspired by the semantic uh, role literature and in particular VerbNet uh, style um, semantic roles, uh, and also some of the higher level uh, FrameNet frames, uh, although FrameNet uh, some of the frames get very specific. So uh, these uh, semantic, uh, so we have uh, actually three portions of our hierarchy and um, uh, two of them are sort of more typical of what you would see in semantic roles of a verb. Uh, but then uh, another portion of the hierarchy that we spent a long time developing um, is for semantic relations between nominals. And there's also a whole literature on semantic relations between nominals, including noun-noun compounds or noun with a with a prepositional phrase modifier, like the man in a hat, um, and uh, possessives, like the man's hat. And so uh, we see this as just a sort of a, another iteration of um, the semantic class approach to complex nominals, but then integrating it with uh, the... Um, uh, semantic role style uh, classes, um, noting that there's some overlap. So you can say the man in the room or the man ate in the room. Uh, the in there is essentially has the same meaning. So we want to have the same form. So just to clarify something. So you you mentioned or you, you distinguished your approach to this kind of tagging for, with um, SRL prop bank style uh, annotations by saying that you're using a semantic class based approach versus like a lexicon based approach. If I took a semantic class based approach to semantic role labeling, uh, the difference then becomes a lot smaller, right? And so you'd be a lot closer to something that includes nominal predicates like nom bank. Um, so because you're you're dealing with prepositions that attach not just to verbs, but also to nouns. Yeah, so I so I see this as uh, a similar, uh, you can you can view this as a um, uh, class-based approach to semantic role labeling. Um, if you take semantic roles to include a broad set of relations, including some things that might be represented in non-bank, 
um, including things that are adjuncts or non-core arguments as well as core arguments and so forth. So why would we want to do this? What, what benefit do we gain from doing this annotation task? The overarching questions is whether we can define a set of roles and relations that um, can characterize the, the wide range of meanings that are out there um, and can be defined well enough to train annotators to uh, do this task reliably. So the space of semantic relations is, is quite open-ended, um, and this is by no means you know, capturing all aspects of the meanings of these prepositions, but we think that to a large extent we can sort of um, say some of these are spatial relations, some of these are temporal relations, uh, and then within those we can distinguish you know, location and source and goal and uh, uh, time, start time, end time, frequency, etc. Um, and then we can uh, uh, broadly um, identify uh, some non-spatial relations and non-temporal relations, like um, uh, if you have a comparison between two things, um, taller than him, uh, we have a label for that. And uh, relations between uh, Individuals and organizations are are uh, quite frequent in in the domain we looked at. So if you um, if you uh, work with somebody on a project, or if you uh, are you know relate you know kinship relations and so forth. Um, so there's a vast range of these things, and we're trying to um, uh, characterize the sort of fundamental, uh, most basic kinds of relations that tend to get grammaticalized. Um, so we're talking, we're talking about relations that are important enough or, and general enough that they can really be expressed by function words in a language, rather than requiring a, uh, a verb or a noun to add a lot of content. And so your motivation here in, in doing this, are you, do you care about more, do you care more about describing language? Or like from a linguistics perspective, do you want to understand <clears throat> how these function words are used? Or are you coming at this from an applications perspective? Like, I think if I can do this tagging task, I can do better at, at building some NLP system. Or I want to understand how computers can, like, how well computers can capture this phenomenon. Like, what what's your take? Why, why are you interested in doing this? Yeah, so uh, one of the big... Uh, so, so I am both, I identify as both a linguist and a computer scientist. And so I care about both sides of the coin here. Uh, the, um, motivation from an NLP perspective involves better understanding things like, um, uh, variation within and across languages, uh, so that we can build maybe better. I, I'd be interested in working on things like paraphrasing and, uh, uh, things like second language acquisition. So if you've ever studied uh, a second language, um, you have probably had some difficulty learning the prepositions. Um, I don't know what, what languages you've uh, studied. Yeah, yes, I've, I've definitely had that experience with a couple of different languages, yes. Uh, and this is because every language has a pretty idiosyncratic way of carving up meanings into its grammatical items, uh, such as prepositions. Um, so we know that second language learners have trouble uh, coming up with uh, using using prepositions in a native-like way. So this seems like a fairly uh, direct application. If we could teach um, second language learners uh, what sorts of semantic classes are, what the, the range of polysemy is for certain items in English, uh, we could help them to use these better in English. Uh, we could maybe also use this kind of um, information in grammatical error correction kinds of tasks. Um, the, uh, the, the broader picture of NLP is, uh, I think in general, that meaning representations are important, and this is by no means the... Uh, the only meaning representation that uh, is important, uh, but I think it's it's important to try to understand how we can characterize compositionality in language because this is 
what um, helps us to uh, constantly produce and interpret utterances that we've never heard before. And we will not always be able to have an end task with a lot of training data that we can we can train an end-to-end system and ignore all of the structure that might be um, that might be going on. So I, th- I think in terms of building generalizable uh, systems, I'm very much and, and interpretable systems. I'm interested in trying to uh, have some explicit aspects of meaning. Now, of course, I'm not saying we should throw out uh, word embeddings or or any of the rest. Um, maybe these can, these sorts of analyses can help us to better understand what our systems are doing right now. So the first point, uh, I'm curious to know if you uh, had any chance to look at the distribution of these super senses in other languages, and have you noticed any missing super senses, not in English, but they exist in other languages? Yeah, so this is, this is the most exciting, I think, uh, direction that we're going now. We uh, have for maybe a year, but more intensively now, we've started looking at a few other languages and trying to apply uh, these uh, same labels. So we've looked, we've, I, my collaborator, Jenna Huang, is, has been looking at Korean. Um, I now have some uh, uh, graduate students I'm working with at Georgetown who are doing uh, additional languages. And we really want to see, first of all, are these semantic categories uh sufficient uh, for those languages. And what we found is some some really interesting cases where um, the uh, uh, space of what is, con- well, so the, the, the challenge often is defining what we consider to be a preposition or a postposition in those languages. And do we require it to act syntactically in a certain way or semantically in a certain way um, to, con- to even include it in this annotation at all? Um, we have found, for example, in Korean, there are uh, certain pragmatic uses of postpositions that seem to be beyond these sorts of semantic relations that we have here. Um, but by and large, the, the sort of early results are that, that the range of preposition behavior in English semantically is so vast that um, there, the kinds of labels we've had to come up with to comprehensively annotate all the types and tokens of, the, of prepositions in English um, have more or less been transferring to other languages. So we are building a parallel corpus uh, right now that will allow us to evaluate uh, these, uh, you know, more these claims in a more quantitative way and see, you know, are the same, if we independently annotate both sides of the parallel corpus, and it seems like a literal translation, uh, are the annotators getting the same semantic label? I'm curious to know if you have an example of that pragmatic uh, that was indicated by one of the post-processors in the, uh, in the other languages. An example I have here uh, in Korean with the caveat that I don't speak Korean, and this is from my collaborators, uh, Jenna Huang and, and Nare Han. Um, there is a uh, Korean postposition noon, which um, seems to work as a uh, sort of a pragmatic uh, focus particle. So you can say, um, John gave an Xbox to Mary. Um, you can attach this noon postposition on the Xbox, and that sort of emphasizes it. So it's, it's John gave an Xbox to Mary as opposed to something else. So we would... Uh, I think this is similar to how we would do contrasted focus in um, in English by emphasizing it, by using prosody. Uh, this is an actual grammatical marker uh, that has a similar function. And so we don't, right now our scheme is uh, um, purely semantic relations, but one direction we've, we think we may need to push to account for um, prepositions and postpositions in other languages is to um, have some pragmatic 
uh, labels as well. Can you explain the distinction that you mean there a little bit? I think someone who's not trained in linguistics might not really understand the difference between a semantic relation and putting more emphasis on something. What, like why, why isn't this a semantic relation? So pragmatics has to do with the structure of um, the conversation and, and the speech act. So the, uh, the, what you're trying to, the, the active communication as opposed to the um, uh, state of affairs you are, that is your, the content of your communication. So the uh, pragmatics of this um, uh, here seems to be that there is, um, so placing emphasis on something is a way of showing that um, you are drawing this, the listener's attention to something in order to, so that they may make some kind of inferences about, um, about the uh, facts that you're trying to communicate. As, as opposed to the semantic relations that are actually what the facts are that you're trying to communicate. Yeah, I should, I should say that I'm, I'm really not an expert in pragmatics, so I'm, I'm hesitant to, uh, to even try to define it, but the pragmatics is generally about the the process of communication and ways that language and grammar can make reference to the uh, the process of communication and things that may be shared between the speaker and the hearer, but are not uh, in terms of common ground and so forth. Um, these can be highlighted with uh, uh, linguistic material. Yeah, and, and we do this in English, like. If I want to say that John read a book, but I want to focus on the fact that it was John, I could say it was John that read the book. Uh, but but we're not using prepositions to do this, and that's why this hasn't shown up in your your super sense. Right. So in English, we might use a cleft construction uh, to uh, saying it was John who. Uh, so changing from the canonical word order of John did X to it was John who did X. Um, this. Um, uh, is another way uh, that, that English uses to maybe uh, communicate a similar meaning to what would be expressed with a postpositional marker in another one. Okay, so I think we've got a decent idea of what you're trying to do and why. We, we want to categorize what the meaning is when we see a preposition. In particular, how does the preposition express what, what role the object of the preposition is playing in the meaning of the sentence? Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about the, uh, I, we've talked about this a little bit, but I think we could use a little bit more detail on the particular hierarchy that you came up with. Like these, you had three broad categories. Can you tell us about this? Sure. So we have, um, uh, three categories. Um, uh, circumstance is, uh, sort of for the semantics that most people think of when they think of prepositions at least in English, these are for um, uh, spatial and temporal relations as well as uh, means and manner and purpose and things like that. Um, so these are typically things that um, uh, that apply to um, that modify verbs uh, and are typically non-core or adjuncts or optional. Um, kinds of relations. Um, but I, I say typically because there are, you know, there are many examples of, uh, prepositions, uh, describing the location of a noun phrase or, um, and there are even some uses of these that are core for some verbs. So the circumstance, uh, uh, part of the hierarchy is about, uh, uh, generally elaborating, on these sort of uh, um, extra properties of events. And then we also have uh, a participant portion of the hierarchy, which is um, similar to the core uh, thematic roles or semantic roles in uh, semantic role labeling. So things like agent and theme and recipient and stimulus and so forth, if you're familiar with that literature. And uh, then the third portion is uh, what we call configuration. And these are mainly for stative relations between entities that are not space or time. 
So if you say the man with the hat, um, there's a wearing relation, essentially. We don't, we don't, we subsume that under a more general label called characteristic. Uh, so the hat is considered a characteristic of the man because he's, he's wearing it. Um, we have things like um, uh, comparison ref, which is for, um, you know, taller than the man, the, the, the use of the word than, um, and some other prepositions that have similar meanings, like um, I prefer uh, swimming to biking. So to there also marks the second item in a comparison. Uh, we have labels for quantities and rates and relations between individuals like um, employment and, and uh, uh, kinship and so, so forth. And we call these uh, social rel and org rel um, to be fairly broad. So this sounds like you, you listed a bunch of different categories. Turns out there are 50 yes. altogether. Um, this, this seems like a lot. Like how, how do you decide how many there are you also talk like there was a, a huge variety uh, in in what you described, and I, it makes me wonder how discrete these categories are, and if this is really all of them, are there more that you didn't cover that you just didn't see in your small in in the corpus that you annotated? Like pre- prepositions are closed class words, right? There on there's a small set of them that we're ever actually going to see, but you're trying to describe semantic roles, and semantics seems open ended. Like we can see new new situations all the time. How can you hope to to capture all of these possible semantic relations in a single set of fifty categories? Our approach was to try to define the the categories to be general enough that. Uh, you can imagine almost any situation being an, int- an instance of one of these situations that we capture. So agent and theme, to take a canonical example from semantic role labeling, uh, agent and theme or agent and patient are, um, are used for uh, um, acts that involve some sort of uh, causality uh, from one person onto a thing or another person. And a whole lot of verbs uh, and scenarios that we talk about can be um, can be slotted into this uh, very generic um, uh, kind of scene of agent acting on theme. So uh, part of the answer is that uh, we are the reason we can hope to be comprehensive is that we're very coarse grained and we're not distinguishing, you know eating events from, um, from, uh, removal events or, or from, uh, um, uh, or, you know, walking versus running and, and all these kinds of things. Yeah. Something like FrameNet that tries to list specific types of events with specific, uh, roles to fill in that event is going to be a whole lot harder to scale to to broad coverage and, and claim some notion of comprehensiveness, right? Where you're be, because you are doing um, something that's much more broad, may, maybe you'll be able to capture new stuff better. And part of the reason is because we think that because these are grammatical, these are function words, um, they are uh, more likely to express things that, to be. Uh, to have very uh, sort of general and therefore useful um, uh, meanings, useful with high frequency. Um, I should mention uh, some of the the pioneering work on uh, preposition semantics, uh, lexicography, and disambiguation, which was the um, the preposition project. It's it's called. It's a uh, and there have been um, uh, successive. Uh, um, iterations of it, but it's it's a lexicon and database, uh, corpus database of preposition senses uh, that was built by Ken Likowski and, and Oren, Hargra- Oren Hargraves, mainly. And this uh, takes a word sense disambiguation approach to English prepositions. So it says, okay, we have the word in, we're going to look in a big corpus and try to uh, find out what all the different possible meanings of in are, including things like uh, wearing clothing um, and uh, 
give those different sense numbers, and then uh, you could use those for annotation and disambiguation. Uh, but what we were trying to do here is that is to see if we can get away from the reliance on somebody deciding what the fine-grained senses are and exactly um, how they are carved up and try to come up with more general principles for these, uh, these general-purpose categories, which we call supersenses. There's, um, there's also a tradition of uh, supersense tagging of nouns and verbs based on WordNet, uh, the WordNet supersenses, and uh, we are trying to extend this to propositions and possessives. Okay, um, can I push on this a little bit? I'd like to understand uh, better. For example, one decision that you must have made is um, in under configuration, there are multiple categories which are not very frequent, like rate unit instead of, and you could have decided to merge them with a parent category, which is configuration. So how do you make this decision? For configuration, we decided we didn't want to apply the label configuration directly. Um, so we wanted to have some sort of more specific uh, label for everything under it. Uh, the, the two you named are indeed the most uh, infrequent labels in our corpus. Um, uh, and frankly, we couldn't find anywhere else to, to put them. So rate unit is mainly for per, like 10 miles per gallon. And instead of is mostly for, you know, the expression instead of, or, and some other, uh, there may be other things that are, have a similar function. Um, which reminds me, I, I forgot to mention that a lot of the things that we've annotated are actually multi-word expressions. So we have, uh, and this, this means the number of tokens we have to annotate. Um, well, th this means that the task involves uh, both uh, deciding what the, the multi-word expressions are and then uh, assigning a semantic category to them. Um, so essentially, yeah, if we, if we found a use of a preposition that we think we thought really didn't fit in any of the other categories, we tried to either create a new category or figure out how to generalize one of the other ones to make it fit. And th this makes me again worried about, uh, you, you mentioned two categories that were for particular words that were special cases. How many more of these would you see if you were to annotate a much larger corpus? And it is this like discrete notion of categories really the way to go? Yeah, well, um, so um, there's a question of, uh, you, I, you can answer this on a, a theoretical dimension or on a, uh, on a um, practical dimension. Um, in both cases, I would say we, coming up with a comprehensive annotation scheme requires some compromises. So we are not, uh, claiming to perfectly capture um, all of the semantic distinctions that a user might be interested in. Um, um, we, we do try to come up with categories that will generalize across multiple prepositions. So if there is a really idiosyncratic use of the word uh, with or something, um, we try to come up with a a more general uh, uh, semantics that that fits into. Um, we have a we're we're working on a database uh, that will be an, an online database of um, uh, of the prepositions that we've annotated and our annotation guidelines. Um, and so I'm, I just looked up rate unit, and so it's not just per; it's also by. So you can say pizza is sold by the slice. And so most of these functions um, at least are a little bit more general than a single word. Interesting. Thanks. Um, related to that, there's been a recent push by, I guess, mostly Luke Zettelmoyer uh, and his group that are thinking about using non-specialist annotators to annotate semantic phenomena just with language. Yeah. Uh, so this is things like question answer semantic role labeling, where instead of uh, for a particular a, a particular relationship between a verb and its argument, giving it like a formal arg zero or arg one that has some specific meaning that's dependent on the verb, just uh, describe the, that relationship with a question. 
using just some string of language. Uh, what, what do you think of this approach to annotation instead of, like, what are the trade-offs between using, um, this more open kind of description versus the, um, more formal category categories that you've constructed? Yeah, I think these crowdsourcing, uh, directions of semantic annotation are really cool. And, um, I would like to actually explore to what extent can we, uh, could we convert, uh, at least part of our annotation task into a, a more crowdsourcing oriented uh, um, uh, way to go about it. I think the most frequent uses of prepositions are are spatial and temporal in a way that uh, ordinary people could probably identify without having to learn these 50 categories. And, and things like paraphrasing and question answering and all of that are... Um, are interesting ways to elicit this data. Um, I think I, I would also mention uh, Benjamin Van Dermy's group has worked on uh, uh, what they call semantic proto roles, which are sort of uh, decomposing uh, properties of arguments um, rather than assigning a single label like agent or, or patient, uh, decomposing them into properties that people can identify like animacy, um, or whether something has moved at, in the course of an event. And um, I'm also really interested to, to see how those kinds of things can, can relate to our um, categorization. Um, as maybe this is just my bias from a linguistic background, but I think uh, it is nice if we can have some explicit labels that linguists can understand, or maybe the developer of a system can understand if they want to see how um, see why a system is uh, making some inference from based on uh, semantic uh, analysis. Yeah, I can see that. This seems very much like a let's try to understand what's going on with language more so than a let's try to maybe that's not the right way to think of it. But uh, taking a step back, it, it seems like people use language all the time without really explicitly thinking about these formal categories. And so clearly the, the capacity for producing and understanding language doesn't depend on a formal understanding of the categories you've described. Sure. Um, but on the other hand, for like really understanding meaning, if we want to try to build systems that understand stuff, maybe, maybe this categorization would help us to um, build better systems. Yeah, I mean, this is the age-old question of, you know, um, should we uh, try to think of, of uh, computers as uh, learning in an implicit way, maybe like we implicitly learn a native language um, without, any, without any explicit knowledge of how um, grammar works and how uh, compositionality works and what senses there are of words and so forth. Um, or should we uh, look at linguistic uh, analyses, linguistic theories, and uh, that try to explain this sort of compositionality and, and meaning and so forth, and try and, and grammar, and uh, try to take advantage of those in building artificial systems that will uh, do useful things with natural language? And um, I think, at the very least, we. Uh, if we're going to be good engineers, we have to try to understand why our systems are doing what they're doing. So we need some techniques from linguistics to to poke around in the systems. Yeah, and I guess this, so this is some results that you, I don't think, have heard about before. These are new from some experiments that I've been running with an intern over the summer. Um, but we've found that we can train a language model, Elmo, on a bunch of text and using just a multi-layer perceptron on top of the representation we get for each word independently, get with an inter-annotator agreement on um, your data set. So uh, what this means basically is that just by training a language model, we can capture um, the phenomena, the, the, the categories that, that you've described. I guess you can look at, at this result in a couple of different ways. One is to say, well, if, if, if the language model has some notion of this, uh, that such that it can produce the categories once it's told about them, um, almost perfectly, uh, do we need this annotation at all? 
that that's one one way to look at look at it. Another way to look at it is, hey, maybe I actually captured something meaningful with this annotation because it's something that you can actually um, get a machine to do consistently. What what are your reactions to to this result? Well, that's that's really exciting. Um, we uh, thought this was a hard task because the training set is relatively small, um, but uh, we had not, in, in the ACL paper, we had not uh, gone beyond sort of standard uh, uh, supervised uh, classification pipelines, and we had not tried ELMO at that point. So um, that's really exciting to hear that, uh, that the accuracy is so high. Um, I think this uh, can be interpreted in a couple ways. One could be that, well, now we can try actually using these for downstream tasks and see if they help these labels help for downstream tasks that where maybe uh, we want something lower dimensional than a language model. Um, uh, another way of thinking about it is that um, uh, maybe these are Going maybe if there's some correlation between what language models are doing and uh, how humans want to label these uh, function words, uh, then somehow we can start peeking into the language models to understand how they're capturing this meaning. So um, yeah, there's lots of exciting stuff to be done. Interesting. So going back to the paper, uh, you make a distinction between um, the scene role and the function of a preposition. Uh, could you tell us a little more about this? Yeah, so this is um, part of. Th this is going to get a little sound a little wonky in, in linguistically if uh, what I have said already has not already sounded wonky. Um, the but uh, in going about this task, we realized that there were um, cases where it was hard to choose one label for a token. And that was for uh, various constructions where um, the prep there seems to be a mismatch between the lexical contribution of the preposition and the um, the uh, role that the prepositional phrase is marking in a uh, in a in a uh, an argument structure or in a um, in an event. So. An example is um, uh, with the verb put, you can put something on the couch or under the couch or in the cushions of the couch. And the uh, preposition you're choosing there is just a plain old locative preposition. So you can say the pillows are on the couch or you can put the pillows on the couch. Uh, however, in our annotation scheme, we distinguish between locations and goals. So if you put something somewhere, that means it is moving to a destination or a goal. And um, therefore, we were having all this trouble getting annotators to agree on if they saw the phrase, put it on the couch, does that mean on is marking a goal or is it marking a location? Because, they, because on the couch by itself is sort of a location, but put it on the couch, um, the pudding tells you that there's a goal. Uh, so what we, and there were various other um, kinds of situations in which this tension cropped up. Uh, and so what we, des we decided was that, well, maybe even though we're going to use the same set of roles um, or super senses, um, maybe the ones that are signaled by the preposition are not always the same as the roles in a scene or, in a, or an event that the prepositional phrase is an argument of. Um, so what we now allow our annotators to say is that put it on the couch, uh, that put involves, that on the couch as a whole represents a goal, but the, uh, the on part is really signaling uh, the end, the um, locative relationship between the pillow and the couch. And do you allow uh, any of the super senses to fit in the role 
and in the function, or are there a subset, like a strict subset that is uh, only uh, valid for one or the other? Good question. So um, we have uh, our so the theory that we're developing uh, essentially of these super senses um, is that um, these are the function is motivated by the lexical contribution of the preposition, but there are some uh, roles and relations for which there does not seem to be any preposition that is uh, that is really fundamentally signaling it, and rather the prepositions that are are being borrowed from other semantic domains in order to signal it. So we have uh, several roles that can only be treated as scene roles and not as functions. Uh, for example, uh, stimulus and experiencer. Um, so these are for events of perception or emotion or cognition. And um, so you can say, um, I was frightened by the bear, or I was frightened of the bear, or the bear frightened me, and there doesn't seem to be anything about by that is really particularly associated with experience or, or I'm sorry, stimulus, um, or and there doesn't seem to be anything in particular associated with of that is associated with a stimulus. Uh, rather, what we think is going on is that um, there are different uh, mappings of stimulus and experience or onto other kinds of uh, abstract scenes, uh, such as causality. So I was scared by the bear or frightened by the bear, um, seems to portray this event as uh, the bear is causing a, a change in your mental state, right? The by the bear is like a passive biphrase. Um, so the bear, in that case, we consider to be a causer of your change in mental state um, in terms of its function. Uh, whereas I was frightened of the bear uh, seems to be uh, more of a portrayal of this relationship in terms of a topic or something that you're thinking about sort of uh, purposefully. Um, so you're considering, uh, you could imagine you, were, you would consider the bear and decide that you're frightened of him. Uh, so th this is an example where we give them the same role in terms of the scene of being, of ha having an emotional reaction. Uh, the bear is the stimulus of the reaction in both cases, but the prepositions that are used seem to be drawn from different corners of the, uh, of the, uh, semantic space, if you will. So we've already gone quite long on this, and we haven't even talked about the particular corpus or the experience that you read in your paper. Um, I, I think we should just direct the, the listeners to the paper to get more detail on that. But I had one last question that I wanted to ask you about uh, before we finish. And this was, so you've now worked on this project for about four years, you said. This is version four of your the corpus that you're releasing. Uh, it seems like most of our corpora don't go through this kind of re-annotation, fixing kinds, kind of process. Do you have any thoughts on what we should be doing differently in, in data annotation or like how projects evolve over time? Sure. So, um, well, so the, uh, the corpus is in version four, um, but it's actually only the second release of the corpus that has a preposition and possessive super senses. So, uh, the that corpus, the Strusel corpus, has been has gone through several different releases because we keep adding more annotation, more kinds of annotations to it. Um, but in terms of the question of revising uh, an approach, I think it's actually not that um, uncommon to if you're developing a new meaning representation, uh, you're not going to get it completely right on the first try, um, and even if you have lots of collaborators and you have lots of discussions and uh, you need to actually be looking at data and uh, 
essentially debugging your representation over a period of time. And I think it's fairly common that once uh, people completely annotate a corpus, they realize all the things they wish they had done differently. Um, uh, so the you know the pen tree bank uh, uh, there was a big uh, change from version one to version two, um, and then there have been, as far as I know, very minor changes after version two. So I think it's not uncommon for. Um, for uh, people who really care about getting a linguistic representation right to uh, annotate data and then go back and try to revise the scheme. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. Thanks. And I think we should probably conclude there. Um, Thanks, Nathan. This has been like a super interesting conversation for me. I've been thinking a lot about where we go next. Like we've gone from just like NLP systems in general, we've gone from word embeddings as like the basic input to our models to now these like linear language models. Uh, We've seen some models that use span based representations, like span representations as one of their base um, inputs, like for co-reference resolution or semantic role labeling. And it sure seems to me like predicate argument structures are like the next thing to try to figure out and this work that, that you're, you've done is, is a nice contribution to thinking about what are the kinds of predicative relationships? How do we find them and annotate them? It's, it's a nice piece of, piece of work. Uh, yeah. And I would, I would add to that, that I think, um, I, I call myself pantheistic with regard to meaning representations. Um, I think there are many different meaning representations that have been developed with different design principles and different pros and cons to them. Um, and I think the, uh, maybe the advantages of this representation are that um, it's coarse grain, so you don't need a lexicon, and it can be sort of applied comprehensively to um, all of the tokens in a corpus uh, of, of prepositions and possessives. Um, and the, it has a meta language uh, that is abstract enough to work across uh, other languages, at least to a large extent. Um, but that's not to say that we don't also want to take advantage of uh, more language-specific uh, resources like um, uh, like FrameNet and PropBank and so forth uh, that give us a little finer-grained window into particular um, kinds of events um, and and their predicate argument structures. So and and we've done a little bit of work, and I think we need to do more work in figuring out uh, what are sort of the cost-benefit analyses of these different these different uh, schemes and in terms of how much does it cost to annotate, what kind of background the annotators need, and then how to what extent do they correspond. Yeah, great. Thanks for coming on. It was nice talking to you. Okay. Thanks so much for having me.